Hello and welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, March 12th. Amanda borchel Dan here, joined by our senior analyst Javier Retegur and news editor Amy Spiro. Hello to you both. Hey guys. Good morning. We've had a packed weekend and have a lot to cover, including a primetime speech from Israel's President Isaac Herzog, the potential political closure of Israeli public broadcasting, and for dessert, a little Eurovision. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. For the 10th straight week, Israelis rallied Saturday night across the country against the government's efforts to radically overhaul the judicial system. Organizers claimed around half a million turned out for the protests nationwide, and another, quote, day of escalating resistance was declared for Thursday as the government is full steam ahead with passing the overhaul bills. Now, wind back the clock a bit, and on Thursday night on primetime news, President Isaac Herzog denounced the government's judicial overhaul legislation as, quote, oppressive and harmful to democracy and called for it to be abandoned immediately and replaced by a framework for consensual reform. He even said the very Israeli, die, enough. Khaviv, were you surprised at all by the stronger tone in this speech? I think that Herzog really took a step forward into the debate. He has been offering and trying to put public pressure on the sides to come to a negotiation. Uh, Both camps, the government, the coalition, and the opposition have been unable to go to negotiation, both, of course, blaming uh, the other. The coalition doesn't seem willing to slow the legislation. It has constantly talked for the last three months about wanting negotiation, but it won't take one day of break in uh, in the actual legislation process. It has also said that it plans to pass this version, the actual version that is currently advancing of the reform, which is exactly as radical as the opposition says. And so Herzog has decided it's no longer time to um, keep asking and, 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 and trying to pressure the sides into negotiation, but in fact, to step out and and do what he can to force the point. Um, the communication minister, uh, Shlomo Kari, is a very outspoken, loud-mouthed, uh, sometimes unpleasant man, and he has the one, for example, when the uh, uh, reservists started to protest and say that they might not come to reserves, he uh, put out a statement, un- unasked, <laughs> but he put out a statement telling all of these reservists, fighter pilots, combat veterans, to go to hell. 
And so that that is the man who then came out and said about um, Isaac Herzog, you know, that he had chosen sides. And I think Kali has a point. Uh, Herzog's speech is sharp. He instructs, he really tells the coalition, you must freeze this legislation. The legislation is, he calls it oppressive. He calls it a nightmare. He just outright lays out that it's a, a damaging to Israeli democracy. And he says, quote, it needs to disappear and quickly. It is wrong. It is oppressive. It undermines our democratic foundations. And therefore, it must be replaced with another plan. And then he says, over the last two months, he has managed to bring about, quote, a situation where the gaps have been greatly reduced. He has hosted think tanks. He's hosted uh, opposition and, and, and coalition politicians. And he says there is agreement on most issues, not on everything, but on the vast majority. And therefore, he would like to have the, co- the coalition table its reform plan and actually take up the agreed framework that he has been developing to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's and finalize that negotiating process. The government doesn't appear willing to do that. Uh, and so Herzog appears in that sense to have taken sides. It is for compromise, not taken sides in the sense that he's just called for it to be thrown out and no reform to pass, like, well, let's say, the radical protesters, the more radical branch of the protesters. I think, you know, Amanda, Herzog has forced us to look at a very important point uh, related to this reform, something that has surprised the coalition, the vehemence of the resistance, the vehemence of the anger. And I think at the end of the day, it has to do with trust. This coalition started out this reform with a, with a very famous hard bargaining tactic, maybe the, the oldest trick in the negotiating handbook. And that is you open with an extreme position and then you slowly offer small piecemeal concessions. It's a very useful tactic if you're unsure of the strength of your bargaining position. You start in an extreme position and, and are forced slowly to some kind of a center that you actually wanted in the first place. It protects you from hasty concessions, overly generous concessions. There is a law professor at Harvard, uh, Robert Minukin, who's an expert on, um, on negotiation, who wrote this book called Beyond Winning, where he describes this, uh, this strategy as especially effective when your opponent lacks a clear sense of their own goals, right? Doesn't know where their red lines are. And the coalition, I think, really identified an opposition that was very diverse, very scattered, didn't have its own response in terms of what it would want for a reform itself. And so they undertook this extreme position that you slowly concede uh, strategy. The trouble with the strategy the coalition undertook is that out of the gate, and this is something Minukin and other scholars of negotiation point out about this strategy, and that the coalition should have known. Out of the gate, you immediately burn bridges. Because you take that extreme position, you lose trust. And so now we have a situation in which this government has actually put forward a reform in which the the Knesset, by which I mean the government, because the Knesset and the government are interchangeable in practical terms nowadays, um, the the government will be able to simply ignore the Supreme Court, override the Supreme Court, uh, appoint the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is effectively a branch of that government. It is not this the, the extreme version that they initially proposed and are continuing to advance. Nothing has changed in the legislation. That extreme version is not, as 
some in the coalition have tried to argue a return to what Israel was in 1995 before the uh, constitutional revolution of our own Barak. It is, in fact, something very, very extreme and extreme to the point where a lot of the people who whose initial policy papers and proposals created this reform from the Kohelet Policy Forum and other places themselves have been coming out against it and arguing against it and trying to, you know, pretend as though the important thing is the court reform and try and keep the focus on reforming the court, which most people agree needs to happen, and not on the actual proposals. And so there's a tremendous amount of disquiet on the right at the fact that they've burned these bridges by taking that extreme proposal, sticking to it. They're now up a tree and they don't know how to climb back down because they want need for their own politics, for their own internal politics with their base. They need the opposition to force them to a more moderate position. They can't do it themselves for political reasons. And so we are now headed full steam ahead with the extreme version of this reform that very, very few people want, but the coalition pretends to want. Um, and uh, and Herzog is saying, guys, you, you don't have the trust to be to negotiate. You burned that trust. You lost that trust. And what we now need is a negotiation over a much more in a much more serious way, in a much calmer way. I want to say, you know, when you undertake the extreme position tactic, it's useful in a very simple negotiation. But if it's a very complex negotiation and there are six or seven layers and 15 different things that all have to be negotiated in a very in a larger agreement, then extreme position negotiations is usually a disaster. And it's usually a disaster because you've burned the trust off the top that you'll need down the road to solve all the different elements that all interlock in the negotiation. Khabib, super interesting. Really reminds me of what my future husband said to me when I first met him in 1999. Here in Israel, we start with no, and then you have what to talk about. We're going to go to a short break now. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. Now, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Amy, let's turn to you and your in-depth look at the potential closer of Khan, the public broadcasting conglomeration that includes radio, nightly news, and of course, brought the world the program Tehran and other hits such as that. So who is actually spearheading the potential closure this time, at least? So it's our old friend who Khaviv already mentioned, Shlomo Kari. He is the communications minister. He came into the job when this government came into being about three months ago. 
Um, and he has made it very clear from the beginning, even before he took office, that he wants to get rid of Khan. He said there's no room for public broadcasting in Israel. Um, he's been talking for months about officially putting forward, you know, his platform and his plans, et cetera. Um, he even scheduled and then canceled a press conference. It seems like, uh, at least from reports, the government has said, hold off. You know, we, we need to deal with this whole judicial uh, plan and then we'll get to you. But he's still, um, you know, a few weeks ago, he sent them a letter basically accusing them of violating the law by being biased in their reporting about um, the judicial plan. So he certainly still has them in his sights. Um, it's, you know, again, the details aren't clear. We've had a few leaked versions of the reports over he's going to cut hundreds of millions. He's going to close down these radio stations. Um, so whatever it is, he clearly wants to uh, sideline to a degree, remove money from and, and potentially and there are other members of Likudu who have also said just shut it down completely. But it seems like the actual kernel of the issue is embodied in something that Miri Regev said. Now, what did she say? So, yeah, it's become this like one of the most sort of infamous Miri Regev, um, who was the culture minister when she said this um, back in 2016. It's sort of like the, uh, the it's this very famous quote that's almost entered, you know, like the Israeli zeitgeist. And she said, um, you know, what good is public broadcasting if we can't control it? Essentially saying, why would we give this money and then let them do whatever they want to do. Um, and at the time, you know, there was a lot more, there's a lot of pushback against that from within Likud saying like, that's the kind of thing that fascists say, right? That's not how democracies work. That's not how public broadcasting work. But the truth is, is that seven years later, that's become a more popular tone in Likud. You have several Likud MKs ministers basically saying like, why should we let this body do whatever they want? Why should we give them money? And then they'll, you know, um, you know, say all these things that, that we don't like. So it's becoming more mainstream. It does not have the support of all of Likud. It does not have the support of the entire government, but um, it has a fair amount of support. And so it's sort of unclear what will move forward. One of the voices you brought into your piece actually touched on the need for a strong democracy to have this public broadcaster. Can you uh, go a little bit more in depth on, on what she was talking about there? Yeah, so there are a few reasons. And one of the big ones that a lot of people I spoke to talked about is just the fact that public broadcasting can do things that the commercial networks cannot do. So uh, in Israel and, and probably in most places, the commercial networks are controlled by large business operations. So um, in Israel, the people who control and own, you know, Channel 12 and Channel 13, which are the main nightly news broadcasts aside from Khan, you know, own own banks and own uh, soda companies and distribute, you know, all sorts of beers and drinks and, um, you know, own uh, petrochemicals and oil and things like that. And then it changes how you're going to view the news outlets reporting. So, uh, you know, who's going to, as one said, who's going to report on Coca-Cola pollution if, you know, not for Khan? Because Channel 12 is owned by the same people who are distributing Coca-Cola across, across Israel. And there are other issues. There are studies that show that in places with a public broadcaster, the populace is more informed. The populace has a better idea of what's going on. They're better informed. The media uh, overall is stronger. The democracy is stronger. Um, and there are studies showing the ties um, here. And also, you know, Khan is the only news outlet in Israel that has a legal requirement to give diverse opinions, to hire diverse staff, to have Haredim, to have Arabs, to have women, to have people with disabilities, all these things. So it's doing something that the other players in the field are not necessarily. 
But we all know that the real reason that Khan has to stay strong is the Eurovision. Briefly tell us, how does the Eurovision link into this story? Yeah, it's really, uh, you know, it sounds silly in a way, but the Eurovision really has played a very significant role in this entire saga that's been going on for years. Um, And that's because the Eurovision is, um, you know... (laughs) People who are not super familiar with it don't realize this, but Eurovision in every country is run by that country's public broadcaster. So in order to compete and to be in the Eurovision, you have to be a member of the European Broadcasting Union, the EBU. And to be a member of the EBU, you have to be a public broadcaster. And there's criteria and rules for what the public broadcaster must be. Um, and when Khan actually went on the air in 2017, replaced the last public broadcaster by BB at the time, and he struck this deal to split it in half, right? And to have the news be a different body because it seemed like Likud wanted more control over the news and they didn't care so much about the other stuff. Um, and the EBU said, uh-uh-uh, like you, you can't do that and you can't do that and stay a member. And then Israel won the Eurovision and then Israel was supposed to host it the next year. And so the EBU said, you can't do this. You can't basically cut the public broadcaster and still host the Eurovision. And that's the essential reason why BB backed down from that plan in the first place and why we have the con that we have today. So this year we have a mega pop star, at least in Israel, called Noah Kirel, who recently unveiled her song Unicorn. Maybe it's another win because I hear it is phenomenal. I think the line is phenomen, phenomen, phenomenal. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, so Noah Kirill is uh, being sent to the Eurovision this year, unlike the past quite a few number of years where we've sent sort of an unknown. Israel is now sending a very veteran seasoned performer. Um, and certainly, uh, the, you know, at the EBU has even over the past couple of months uh, heard all these reports of everything going on with the public broadcaster and said to the government, like, you need to be careful because we're watching and we are paying attention. And if you don't have a functioning independent public broadcaster, if Noah wins or if Noah doesn't win, you know, you can't um, stay in the EBU. So, yes, she unveiled her song Unicorn last week. It is interesting. Mostly in English. Mostly in English. Yes, there's like a line or two in Hebrew, sort of similar to Netta and Toy, where there was sort of like a, a throwaway line in Hebrew. Um the reactions have been mixed. People like it, but it is one thing you've heard a lot from people who are reacting to it. Um, is that it's not very cohesive. It's kind of like five songs in one. Um, but people are also holding off to see how it looks on stage and how the staging and the live performance, because that's really what this show is about. So we will see what happens. Okay, looking forward to it. Amy, Khaviv, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.